Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in the game. So I'd say I'm joined as ever by Duncan Castles, but on a weekend where Jurgen Klopp's challenge for the Premier League faces another staunch test, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Rafi Honigstein, who you've heard before in the transfer window, a man who is uh, omnipresent, we were just saying before we came on air, and uh, of course, broadcaster, journalist and author of the definitive story of Klopp's reign at Liverpool, Bring the Noise. Uh, I believe, Rafi, get the plugs out of the way quickly. You're out in paperback now, is that correct? Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning it. Excellent. And did you do the recording for the audio book as well? Did you actually, talk, did you do the actual um, voicing of it? I did not. I wanted someone with a stronger German accent than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, stronger German accents aside, we will start with news as we always like to. I'm going to uh, just let you guys know that at Celtic Park last night, where, of course, uh, the mighty Glasgow Celtic uh, beat Lazio 2-1 in the Europa League, scouts were sent by both Manchester United and Chelsea, whom sources at the club have confirmed to me did turn up, because often they don't, picked up their tickets. They were there with a view to watching Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, the Serbian midfielder who's making uh, a real impression, not just this season, but last season as well, for uh, the Rome club. Um, obviously, uh, Manchester United currently uh, have signed uh, Nemanja Matic on their books. Sergei Milinkovic-Savic is known as the new Nemanja Matic. So, Duncan, it'd be interesting if they both had the old and the new in the squad at the same time. Well, I think that's unlikely because Nemanja Matic is uh, very unhappy with his situation at Manchester United and um, will actively push for a move unless that changes there. Milinkovic-Savic is a player that they have had on their you know, monitoring list for a long time. The player Lazio have been happy to sell um, if the money is right, and they've asked for a very high uh, fee for him. You know, uh, figures over 100 million floated for him during that period. So um, I think it's, that's a deal that if Manchester United were to decide he was the right player for that position, and they certainly haven't done that in the two years they've been monitoring, they could do it for um, a certain fee because. As I say, Lazio will sell and the player is keen on upping his salary and moving to a different league. But, um, well, we've had Edward Wood talk about how extensive their scouting process is these days and uh, and how many analysts and uh, uh, and specialists they get involved in the process. So um, I think that tells you that uh, you have to be careful with these sort of scouting, uh, monitoring uh, tasks in, the, in in modern football. I believe two scouts turned up, but they actually knew each other this time, Duncan. They knew they were both going to the game. <laughs> Did they speak to each other this time? I can't confirm that, but, and... but I'm told one was from the data analysis team and one was from the scouting department. So I think one was there taking the notes and the other one was just there to watch. 
<laughs> we'll see. Um, with the departure of Ander Herrera, Rafi, does this seem like more sense now than it may have done, say, a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, when we knew that United were interested in Milinkovic Savic, but at that price he was expensive, since proven himself better in Europe as well. And as I said, Herrera's left a bit of a hole in that United midfield. Well, I think buying him would have made sense at any stage over the last uh, couple of years because you would add midfield presence, um, physical strength, quality on the ball, all the things you want as a top team. The question is, would he have been just the latest sort of player that gets lost in this Manchester United midfield and wider side. So I think it's not so much a question of whether United should go go after him. They definitely should. The question, I think the real one is, does he want to go there? Because he will have, I think, better options next summer. Very true. That's one of the problems that Manchester United have just now. The luster has faded in terms of the, the great club's name and attracting players has become more difficult. There were unconfirmed uh, rumours that United also were hoping to see Chiro Immobile, the Italian international striker. We know uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has said publicly that he's desperate to buy a striker in January if possible. Immobile would be someone, I think, who would fit in their system. However, he is a bit of a kind of symbol of Lazio and much more difficult to prize out of that club, I suspect. Um, he only came on as a late substitute as well against Celtic and made not very much of an impression for what I could see. So uh, I think we will uh, just wait and see on Immobile. Uh, maybe just a case of covering two bases in one game. Rafi, very interested to get your views on uh, Germany's young super striker, Timo Werner. Um, we've been talking in the pod the last couple of weeks that he's on Manchester United's list of three preferred options for striker. Um, now, I realise RB Leipzig are doing very well again in this year's Bundesliga. How difficult would it be for him to leave in January? And would he even want to leave, as you just mentioned, to go to Manchester United? Well, he might well want to leave in January, but I think it's it's all but impossible that Leipzig were to let him go. Unless, and this is the, the big caveat, there was some sort of prior agreement when they uh, extended his contract. I mean, Timo Werner had a very difficult summer because he had all but agreed terms with Bayern was expecting them to go for it. They kept on telling him, yeah, yeah, well, come, don't worry. You know, everything's sorted. And in the end, the call never came. He was very, very upset. And uh, he, he renewed a deal with, with Leipzig to up his wages and to give Leipzig more leverage uh, when it comes to eventually selling him. But um, now that Bayern are definitely out of the picture, the next move will be abroad. Um, he's made it no secret that I think he wants to go to the Premier League. And the question is sort of who needs him, who needs him most? I think the issue with, uh, you know, leaving January aside, which I think will be very, very difficult, the issue with, with Man United and him is he is a little bit like the strikers they already have. You know, he's a wide player that likes to cut inside. Yes, he can play through the middle, but he needs space. He needs a uh, ball to feet. He needs, uh, ideally, uh, people around him to uh, be more of a target uh, striker, like Yusuf Paulson, for example. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Bayern ultimately never bought him, because they couldn't quite figure out how they would fit him into the side. He's not a winger, and he's, he's not Lewandowski. So I can understand why United are saying, you know, young striker, yes, plays for Germany, super, super interesting. But he wouldn't necessarily, in my view, solve the problems of not having that sort of uh, big, um, you know, recognised striker up front that they're so clearly missing this year. His goal-to-game ratio, though, um, Rafi, is far superior 
to anyone currently playing for Manchester United. So in terms of goal conversion, that could well be. And remember, Solskjaer got rid of Romelu Lukaku, who was their top scorer, because he didn't like that heavy physical presence, uh, you know, target man striker, being the kind of lightweight sort of uh, silent assassin or babyface assassin that he was. I think he does prefer um, mobile, fast strikers who can interchange wide and central. So, I mean, what, what do you think, Werner, would suit the Premier League generally, though? I think he, I think he would. I think he's, he's strong enough to play in, in any league and to play for most clubs. But I think you'd have to really look very carefully how to, to fit him in. I, I think you're right in what you're saying. You can be, of course, a Sergio Aguero. That, you know, that, that there aren't only number nines out there, sort of proper number nines. But I think they need a specific game. Uh, they need uh, you know, a specific approach, which is either uh, quite fast, uh, uh, counter-attacking base, which was Leipzig last year, or this year where he's uh, often dropping into a, um, into a playmaker role, or indeed on, uh, to the wings where he played most of the game against... Uh, who did they play? Uh, it was so impressive, I already forgotten the opposition. <laughs> uh, Listen, we've all done that. Against Zenit, they played against Zenit. Yeah, he played. He played mostly on the left wing against Zenit in midweek. So, so yeah. Rafa, sorry, so Rafi, um, two questions. Uh, does this mean that the bridges are burnt between Bayern and Werner, and that's an impossible uh, move to be resurrected? And secondly, from the way you described the player, do you see him as a better fit to Liverpool's attacking system than to Manchester United's requirements at present? I think the second question is, is easily answered. Absolutely. I think he would be, in my view, the ideal supplement to the, to the front three. Um, he is very similar uh, in terms of his movement, in terms of his positioning to what they've got already. Different player, more of a striker. Um, than, uh, than perhaps uh, Salah. But, uh, yeah, he would fit there easily. And I think that's why a lot of people in Germany were a little bit surprised that Liverpool never um, pushed for him this summer. At the same time, um, to answer your first question, you never say never in football. I mean, if Bayern, for some reason, decide that, or if maybe Leroy Sané doesn't work out for whatever reason and they, they feel that they can convert him into sort of a semi-striker from a, from a wide position like, like Nabri, then it's not impossible. But I, I know for a fact that the people close to him, uh, he himself, they were all very, very disappointed that having felt that uh, this deal was done, Bayern ultimately felt he wasn't quite ready for them and never, never picked up the phone anymore. There, there have been a lot of noises about there being a defined release clause in that new contract that Werner signed in the summer. Um, what's your information on, on that matter? I've never been able to, to substantiate that. If there is one, that they've been, they've been doing a very good job at keeping it very quiet. Usually those things, as you know, Duncan, yeah. uh, come out very quickly because it's in the interest of at least one party um, to, to fix a price for, for the rest of the market. But it hasn't happened here, which tends me to believe that maybe it's more of an informal arrangement between him and the club. Okay, and you you mentioned Leroy Zani. Obviously, that's a story we we talked about a lot in the on the transfer window um, during the summer. Where where are Bayern in terms of their the pursuit of the player, um, given his injury situation and given that he hasn't 
he's still not committed to a new contract at Manchester City at present. Now, from what I understand, Bayern have not um, sort of categorically decided that they will go in for him in January, but there are a lot of signs pointing in that direction. I think the biggest one is that they managed to convince him, or maybe he, by his own volition, decided not to have surgery at the preferred doctor of Pep Guardiola in Spain, but in fact in Austria, where all of Bayern's um, players are being treated. So that in itself, I think, is a strong indication that Bayern retain a strong interest and that the player himself sort of um, feels that something still might happen. There is also, even though some Manchester City fans really refuse to, to believe that, uh, some residual uh, ill will or at least frustration with how this, this panned out on behalf of the player. He um, was not the impression at some stage that he wasn't going to feature uh, in the uh, uh, community shield. And of course, as bad luck happen, uh, would have it, he, he got injured there. So uh, I wouldn't say that you know he, he would definitely not play for Guardiola anymore, or that they totally fallen out, but he was unhappy um, that he was being played with negotiations um, being quite advanced at that point. That's, that's interesting. You went to Austria for surgery. Did, do you know if the surgeon um, recommended a different approach to um, the Barcelona-based doctors that Pep Guardiola trusts in? I, no, I, I can't tell you that much detail. I mean, usually cruciate ligaments are, are relatively straightforward unless there is damage to the knee, to the, to the cartilage, or to the meniscus. Yeah. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, his, uh, from everything we've heard and we've seen reported in local press, who are very close there, so it's again, it's it's a boon for the Munich uh, press, if you will. Um, <laughs> his his uh, recovery is is well on track, and it seems fine. I just think that uh, Bayern just seemed to have been, you know, in his head a little bit because there were similar stories with Tolisso, for example, wanting to have surgery uh, back in France, I think. And uh, they heavily lent on him to make sure he's having surgery at uh, their preferred doctor in, in Innsbruck, just uh, just across the border, really. So I think it's it's not a sort of smoking gun, but it is a piece of the puzzle pointing towards Bayern's indicate towards Bayern's ambition and uh, uh, you know um, way of the the way they want to do these things with with him in, in mind. In my experience, uh, Rafi, anyone who defies Pep Guardiola when it comes to medical advice is on thin ice. So I would say that that is quite significant, um, especially regarding uh, how, uh, let's just say, persuasive Pep likes to be when it comes to where he sends his players. Um, I know a player who had uh, um, his ACL reconstructed recently by the same Barcelona doctor, and unfortunately, at this moment in time, he's got no chance, or certainly no nothing in sight with regards to coming back to playing, even though the surgery is over. So maybe uh, Leroy Zani made the right choice in this particular case. One more little uh, point of news as well before uh, we leave the Bundesliga for uh, news of German players and managers in England, and that is Duncan. Rumours that Josie Mourinho is the preferred candidate for the Borussia Dortmund job, should that become available. You have some information for us which perhaps can clear up this link. Yeah, I think this was um, reported in the German uh, press uh, yesterday, or the day before yesterday. Um, it's been knocked back 
by uh, Dortmund sporting director Michael Zork, um, who said that they, they are not considering a change of manager at the moment and there's no substance in the rumours. Um, it's an interesting one in that Mourinho does have a very good relationship with the hierarchy at Dortmund. Um, not long after he was dismissed by Chelsea, um, he and his assistants travelled to Dortmund as guests of the club uh, to watch a Champions League match. So there is a there's a, a long-standing relationship between Mourinho and that club, and I, I suspect that is where um, the the basis of these uh, the story has come from. It would um, be of a highly unlikely move um, for uh, Mourinho, given that he doesn't have command of the German language. Um, his preference is to take a club where he can uh, return to winning titles. And with Dortmund, you'd have to say that's a, a very um, far more significant challenge than it would be uh, moving to, for example, Bayern Munich, who he um, had uh, some significant hopes of, of taking the, the being offered and taking the job and, and had um, support from within the uh, Bayern hierarchy for his appointment in the summer. Um, as matters stand, he is waiting uh, for the Real Madrid job to open up. Um, and is very much in the mind of Florentino Perez as uh, the the replacement um, should results allow him to dismiss Zinedine Zidane. Thank you for clearing that up, Duncan. Uh, on the money, as always. I'm just going to start this little section uh, before we uh, go on to it uh, with a tweet which was appeared on our timeline this morning or maybe late last night. For the sake of um, sheer embarrassment, I'm not going to name the person who tweeted it, but it was about Mesut Ozil. And this particular listener said, why doesn't United just buy him? It'll solve all our problems of creativity. The answer, of course, to that is anyone? Alexis Sanchez. I think that's the answer. Is why that's not going to happen. But a lot's been said, um, and of course, Ozil Rafi left out of Unai Emery's squad for the Europa League match on Thursday night. Um, seems to be taking it with a pinch of salt, given the social media posts with Robert Perez laughing and joking and everything else. But I mean, it's become getting to the point now where we have to ask, how do you solve a problem like Mesut Ozil? Well, I think I'm, I'm not speaking out of turn when I when I say that. The solution from Uzo's point of view might might be solving the problem called Unai Emery. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's always someone else's fault. <laughs> <laughs> but in this particular case, I think there is uh, there has been throughout uh, really the one the last eighteen months there has been uh, a very strong stance taken by by Uzo and his people to say, look, I I don't play for the manager, I play for the club. They have given me this contract. They have decided I'm a really important player. And if this manager doesn't want me, maybe the next one will. Uh, I don't see why I should leave and uh, what I should go when it is someone who might not be around for much longer pushing, trying to push me out. And that has not changed. And I think, if anything, that position has hardened with a sense that more and more people inside the dressing room and certainly inside the club are coming around to the view that Emery might not be the long-term solution. Uh, for this team so we are at an impasse and uh, I don't see any resolution as such because the easy one in most cases which is the player to leave 
doesn't apply here. He doesn't want to go. And he'll just wait and see what happens. It wouldn't be Mesut Ozil spreading those rumours by any chance, would it? That I am, he's not the right man for the job. No, no, it's actually not him. It's, it's not just rumours. If you are, you know, speaking to people close to the club, speaking to other players, it's not that they don't like Emery. It's just there is just a, a residual doubt that he is necessarily the right man to really take them forward. Um, I think he's a decent manager. He's, you know, he stabilised the club after Wenger's um, departure. But the big push hasn't happened, and you don't see it happening in the second year, which was, you know, when when things were supposed to fall into place. So it, it's more of a, it's less to do with him and Özil, and more of a, I think, a general uh, sense that he just might not be the right guy uh, to take Arsenal forward. And I think that is a view that a lot of people are coming coming around to, uh, irrespective of the Özil issue. A lot of people, Rafi, from the outside, and and I stress from the outside. See the way Ozil's body language when he is on the pitch, as I said, his social media posts, etc., etc., and judge him as being someone who's you know, a little bit flaky, someone who isn't maybe mentally as strong um, as you would need or like to be to be a top-level professional footballer. However, the message Ozil you've just described with regards to his ambition to stay at Arsenal sounds like the opposite of that uh, stereotypical image which is sometimes portrayed. It's a it's a matter of how you want to dress it up. I mean, you could say, you know, a real footballer would want to play and would want to push very hard and would not stand for being um, uh, left on the sidelines. He seems to be quite happy with that in a way. So you, you can still turn it around and make that an accusation about his sort of lack of uh, uh, ambition and lack of engagement if you want to. But at this point, I think these things are, are kind of separate. You know, he, he's not going to become... A Roy Keane is not going to become a different player on the pitch. And off the pitch, he's at an age where he just feels, why should I now go to Turkey or to Italy uh, just to bide my time when I wanted to stay in London when I have signed a new contract with, with Arsenal less than two years ago? Um, he just doesn't want to do it. And, uh, of course, Arsenal are, are trying uh, in one way or the other, I think, to solve the solution. But uh, in this case, having, them, having given him a... a, a really bump a contract not a long ago there's not a lot they can really do unless they freeze him out completely which of course you might say that's exactly what Emery is doing but the player has shown himself imperious to that uh, to that kind of pressure so um, it's a question of time sort of who whoever gives up first but having spoken to to people very close to Uzi I wouldn't be surprised if it's not him Rafi you've you've worked with Uzi for his entire career, followed his career through his many successes and controversies. If you were um, advising the manager of Arsenal, how central would you make him to Arsenal's current squad, their current first team with the the personnel they have uh, to build around him? I'm not sure you can make him a central part of the team if you want to play a pressing game. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a manager and I come in to say, I want to now really press and I want to be very aggressive up front, it's, it's, it's going to be hard with Mesut Ozil. But if I want to be more flexible and say, look, and this is how it's been described to me not long ago when, when the new deal was effectively signed with Ozil, whatever you think of him in the big games and against special position, you still can make great use of a player who will help you Windows 20 winnable games against less than amazing opposition, which puts 60 points on the board, which is your starting position, you know, to challenge the back, to challenge the top four. 
But Emery seems to have made up his mind that there's absolutely no place for Meza, not even in the in the Europa League against you know very amenable opposition. So very difficult to to understand if this is just a sporting decision or if this is Emery or indeed the club sort of trying to make a, a more political point here. Uh, tough to say, but I think Emery has is in a difficult position because it was clear from what happened in the Europa League final that him and uh, and and Meza don't don't really get on. So whatever he does now, his motives will be questioned, and it's very hard for him, I think, to pretend it's just about football. On a player of Özil's reputation, career, Rafi doesn't even make an 18-man squad for Europa League game. There's clearly more to it than just footballing reasons. That must be surely a message to Özil. I don't want you. You're not needed, and you know, make yourself available to go somewhere else. I, I'm not sure that message has ever been spelled out because, um, you know, Emery keeps saying he has to work harder, you know, and he has a chance. And if he does this, then maybe this and maybe that. And I think the, the, the club, as far as I'm aware, have never set him down or his agent and said, look, you have to leave. Uh, maybe in recognition that they're not in a position to do that, to do that really. Um, so, of course, a message is being sent. Of course, he's being marginalized. There's absolutely no... No doubt about that. But uh, as we said in the beginning, he seems absolutely determined to, to see this one out. And of course, if Emery was winning games, lots of games, if his team were playing brilliant football, then all of this would, would fade into the background and everyone would be saying, well, Mesut Özil is the, is the guy who's not part of this new Arsenal revolution. He needs to move. But because there will be always this, this fantasy or this, this image of him doing better, than what they have at the moment, um, Emery, by by trying to sort of to kill to kill this debate by not picking him, actually only manages to to fire it up and fuel it even more because his performances, his team's performances, just aren't that convincing without him either. Well, as if to add into the contradictory status of Mesut Özil at Arsenal uh, after uh, the win on Thursday night in the Europa League, uh, Unai Emery was asked about why Uzo was left out of the squad altogether. And his response was, tonight is not the day to talk about that. So, read into that what you will. It's either tonight or his day, and I, you can't have both at once. So, uh, as I've mentioned before, we've uh, got another huge game in the Premier League this weekend, um, especially for Liverpool, who are six points clear at the top of the table, taking on a slightly revived Spurs team, um, who have uh, turned around their dreadful, dreadful performance against Bayern Munich a couple of weeks ago in terms of both Premier League and in the Champions League. Now, it would be remiss of us, obviously, Rafi, with you being one half of Jurgen Klopp's brain, as someone once said, uh, well, I said it just now, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to not ask you, um, what, do you, what do you believe? You know Klopp very well. What do you think he's thinking at this moment in time, he's just dropped two points uh, last weekend um, uh, against Manchester United at Old Trafford. So the lead's been cut from eight to six. Um, this incredible, incredible uh, weight of pressure, expectation, history falls upon his shoulders again this um, this season uh, after so narrowly missing out last season on the Premier League title to Manchester City. Um has he? Will he change the way he handled it from last season when they ultimately did fail? He does seem to be slightly more pragmatic with regards tactically and setting his team up. Um, what's in his mind 
albeit we're still only early in the season with regards to how do I keep this up? How do we get over the line? Yeah, well, well, first of all, I would say that that sort of that pragmatism you saw that even last year, there were games where the fullbacks just didn't come forward. Uh, they managed games. They were a little bit, a little bit cagey. So that, that I don't think that's that's anything new. I don't think that's a um, reaction to sort of the pressure ramping up or anything like that. I think that's just sort of a natural evolution of a team that feels that they can play with a little bit, a little bit less energy and a little bit less risk because they have enough quality to do so. Um, it didn't entirely work out at uh, at Old Trafford, but probably the the point is seen as as acceptable at this stage. Um, Knowing him from sort of previous title races and, and situations like that, I think he will always try his best to coach in the moment and to put all thoughts about what might happen in May and what we might have to do now to win the title or, you know, how does this leave us as far away as possible. Uh, and just really, as much as it is a cliche, I think that is really the way he's always been working is just to focus on the next game and just to try to win that. And I don't think, um, having spent a little bit of time with him before the Champions League final uh, this year, that the pressure, I don't think the pressure gets to the team and to, to his staff as much as we'd like to think from the outside. Uh, there is, I think, now a real sort of big club mentality there where they just feel, you know, this is, this is what we do. I mean, we win games. And I don't, I don't think they feel under more pressure now that they're doing well than they would have done if they'd been doing slightly less well uh, and maybe would have City to chase at this point. There's just a, a real sort of deep felt conviction that they will, will, will drop very few points this year. And whether that's enough or not will, will not just be down to them, but also to City to a certain extent. But I just don't, I don't see that the thinking or the approach is changing because of 30 years of history or anything like that. I mean, he's the first guy who would, you know, try and, and, and spend hours, at least in private, telling you why that is the, exactly the wrong way to think about coaching. And he'd do everything not to, to fall into that trap. Rafi, um, we see with Jurgen Klopp um, his ability to, to be quite emotional when things go wrong after matches, um, particularly in the press conferences. You, 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 you talk about in your book um, his capacity to, to get angry um, in, the, in these situations. How does he handle that in terms of you know, this sort of what you've elaborated there, uh, talk, work game by game, focus on the coaching, focus on the process? How does he manage to keep that emotionality that we see when results go against them out of the rest of the week once he's back with the players and once he's back into the process of, of coaching? Can he, does he just turn it off once he, once he leaves the press conference area? Yeah, he just turns it off. I mean, there, there's some amazing examples back from, from his beginning as a coach where at Mainz they missed out on promotion, a promotion that would have been the first ever for the club because someone else scored, scored two goals in injury time. And he was crying, he was, he was distraught. He thought, you know, Mainz would never be in that position again. But like a day later, they were partying and saying, okay, we're going to just, this was just going to make us even stronger for next year. And at some level, he seems to believe it, which is the only explanation for why he can make his players believe. Because it's very easy, I think, for players to think, oh, this guy is just lying to me. 
He's just mm-hmm. lying. He says, you know, we're just going to pick ourselves up and it's going to be fine. This is getting to him. But for somehow, some reason, he's got this capacity. He talked about, he talked about uh, comic figures once where, you know, uh, he, he, he used clever and smart, as they call him, Joe. And I think they have a different name in English. But you can, might as well use Tom and Jerry who, you know, Tom gets, he gets, he gets flattened, he gets burned, he gets smashed up. And like a minute later, he's back running. And he's once said, you know, that he admires that in, in comic figures. And I think he tries to be the same guy, you know, to sort of just not let those, those blows get to him somehow. And I think he's, he's very good at, at making his players believe that somehow it works. But where he still does get very angry, and this is the club that perhaps we don't see so much, is when he feels the players are not doing well. I think there he's closer to a Ferguson, where he can really, he can really take players down. But like Ferguson at his best... A minute later, he will then be back, changing tack, embracing the player and saying to him, look, I'm angry because you made me. And if you want me to be happy, then you just need to play better. And this is what you can do to play better next week. And the player kind of responds to it and says, yeah, I understand. It was my fault. So he, he still gets very, very upset, even more upset than we see them when it comes to sort of post-match interviews and referees when he feels players haven't done well enough. And my suspicion is that, for example, like someone like Divock Origi, who had a very poor game uh, mm-hmm. on Sunday, would have, would have come in for very heavy criticism behind the scenes. Do you, do you feel that um, with the six-point lead, with the eight-point lead that they've had, um, that Klopp now has the range of tactical um, options available to him to see that over the line? Um, I think on, on Sunday, in my view, he stuck far too long um, with his starting system, which Solskjaer had come up with a, a good approach to play against, um, only switching to a four-four-two with the right players in the right positions in the last, what, 15 minutes, um, which did turn the game around. Uh, but I, I see quite often with Klopp... Uh, it seems like a resistance to make changes to starting shape. Um, do you think he's, he he has that enough of that in his uh, in his locker in terms of his his uh, thinking and also options from the bench to switch things to 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 win the title this time around? Mm. I think I think there's two there's two questions here. I think. First of all, with United, I think he did change a lot earlier when he put Henderson up front to the right. I think that happened straight after the kickoff in the second half and, and changed the dynamic a little bit. But you're right in the sense that he doesn't, like, like Pep, who absolutely has no qualms of dropping a system after 15 minutes if it doesn't work, he will not, he's not quite as interventionist. What I think he would probably disagree with is the idea that there was something lacking in tactical flexibility or tactical options or at least options on the on the bench that stop Liverpool winning the title because I think in their mind they have done anything they could have feasibly done to win the title and I don't think they see it as you know if only we'd had that number 10 so I asked I asked his, his assistant um, back in May if, you know what you need to get get over the line and he's basically dismissing this whole line of thinking he's saying you know the, the idea that we were only missing that one player and maybe we could have had 99 points instead of 97 that's not how we think we think you know we we need to do as best as we can to have the best possible squad and we don't see that what we did yes last season was somehow deficient and somehow you know lacked lacked a certain component so 
they they were dismissed it. And I think with 97 points, it's very, very, very difficult to argue that, you know, if only he'd done this or that, they might have had more results. It's, I mean, I think as pundits, we like to play that game, but it, I think coaches don't necessarily think in, the, in those terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the thinking is if, we, if they were good enough to win 97 points last year, they're good enough to win 97 points this year. And in most years, that, that, would, that would be more than enough. So, I, yeah, I, 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 I get that. I guess the argument would be that they were somewhat fortunate to get those 97 points in terms of um, bizarre goalkeeping errors and a few um, very questionable refereeing decisions that went their way. So yeah, pragmatically, sure. you'd want to uh, you want to say, well, our, our real total was was 90. And um, do we need more tactical options as an observer? And a, an observer with, with really good access to this team, do you think they're a better side, um, both in terms of personnel, in terms of experience and, and players who come back to fitness and the evolution of the coaching staff and, and the way they have them playing this season than from last season? No, I, I wouldn't say that. I think it's too early to, to make that call. I think mm-hmm. he was very, very unhappy with pre-season and had some very bad pre-season uh, performances. And uh, they they actually had good results without playing necessarily well uh, in, in some of those league games. So I, I think they're not quite at their best. I don't think they're quite at the level that we have seen uh, last season and even in some spells before. But of course, it doesn't really matter because they they win and they just their their bad days are not bad enough to see them drop too many points or see them get beaten. So. Um, Again, I think it feeds to this, into this idea that rather than changing things for change's sake and, and bringing in more players, they are more focused on having what they had and make sure they can make that consistent. I think it is perhaps counterintuitive because we like to think as new players coming in, making a team better. But whenever I floated that idea over the last few years, you know, when it comes to, for example, I said to him, I said to him, why don't you have a number nine? You know, maybe you need a number nine in January when you can't play football, when everyone's tired and you just need that guy who just sticks one in or just heads one in from a corner. He said, yeah, but we don't think like that. We, we, we don't think we can play one way and then January we're just going to stick a number nine up there and just play completely different. That's not us. Uh, and again, I think there's a, there's a sort of reluctance to say, you know what, if we only add one more big star, uh, we're going to be absolutely flying because they're thinking, well, if I add one big star, then my other stars would be unhappy because they'll be on the bench and I have to change the system again. So I think they, in their mind, especially with, with Pep in line, there's having a lot of influence on what Liverpool do with the ball, where they have made great progress over the last two years or so. Um, they feel that they have a formula that works. And of course, there'll be constant tweaks and there'll be, uh, there'll be an evolution and there'll be um, things that need to change and players that need to be better, etc. But um, my understanding is, or you know, the best way I can describe it is they, they don't want to mess with this formula too much in the hope of sort of chasing some impossible ideal that might be achieved um, if they would add more you know, shiny parts to that, to that jigsaw. They, they don't feel it's necessary. Absolutely. And it's a very sensible approach. There's a lot of intelligence to sticking with something that's working well. Just just in terms of your insight from the coaching staff, and we, we've talked there about how they're not, although the results have been very good this season, they're not playing um, brilliant football and, and, and not at the level, as you said, 
uh, Klopp was unhappy with the, the pre-season performances. What is the coaching staff's perspective on why they're not at that level um, so far this season in terms of quality of performance as opposed to quality of result? I'm not sure there's, there's one reason, but I think having not had a proper pre-season for a lot of the big players was, was a big factor for them. Um, injuries as well, I think they haven't been able to rotate as much as they, they wanted to. And uh, maybe, although no one will ever talk about this, um, maybe as well a, a bit of a disappointment that they weren't able to sign this one player that they were looking at, a player that could have um, solved two issues at once. They wanted someone who can be a backup on the left, who can also then play further up front. Um, and that, that kind of player uh, never materialized. Now, I don't know personally if that's because the target fell through or because ultimately they couldn't identify the target that ticked all those boxes. But I know that there was, um, certainly going into the summer transfer window, uh, there was a sense that they could do with that type of player. Uh, and I think that would have helped, for example, Andy Robertson a little bit, because as we know, Liverpool is dependent on the on the energy and on the the guile of their fullbacks. And when they're a little bit jaded, um, their their game is not quite the same. So it's going to be interesting how they'll manage that with the uh, amount of games that they will have with the Club World Cup and so on. It it might come back to to be a bigger problem, I think, in January and February, unless they maybe find a solution in the winter. Well, last week, uh, as you will all know, we managed to record a world record quickfire round in terms of its speediness, uh, called it Speedy Gonzalez, if you like. It certainly was that when we named all 11 Liverpool players in our combined Liverpool-Manchester United team for ahead of the game at Old Trafford, which of course was drawn 1-1. I'm now going to ask both Rafi and Duncan to give us their combined Liverpool-Spurs 11 uh, ahead of this Sunday's clash. I'm not expecting to be quite as quick as last week, um, although I have to say just before we go on to this, I'll now forever have the image of Jurgen Klopp's head on Tom the Cat's body whenever I watch Tom and Jerry cartoons. And I think Pep's head on Jerry's and Jurgen just basically chasing him around. Uh, that's one for you to think about while you listen to the boys doing the quick fire. Goalkeepers, chaps, please give me your options. Well, uh... I think it's it's not a question at this point. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty straightforward. Uh, okay. Baker. <laughs> in, in which case, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, ask you for both full backs at this point in time as well. Um, again, I think we we both both Liverpool full backs, yeah. Robertson and Alexander Arnold. And centre backs. You go first and centre backs, Rafi. Well, I think Van Dijk is a, is a good shout at this point. <laughs> Brilliantly understated. I think, and I think on, on current form, although you didn't have his best game against Manchester United, you'd probably have Matip in alongside him. This is sounding all very familiar, boys. <laughs> now, I'm going to say we're going to go for 4 3 3. So, uh, three central midfielders. Rafi, do you want to start uh, right to left? Uh, I would put on the right, uh, if this is just form, can I take the option? Yeah, just form, yeah, yeah. No, just yeah, no, I, we, we all I, do it on form. Yeah, can I put Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain on the right? Okay. Duncan, would you agree with that? 
Um, I'm not sure I'd go for Oxlade-Chamberlain. I'd, uh, I think I'd have Ndombele in the team and I would ha- certainly have Fabinho as the holding midfielder. Yeah, no, no argument for me there. Um, on the left, you'd, uh, we can either go, go uh, adventurous and put Keita there or go for the, the control um, with, uh, with, with Milner or Henderson. I, th- I still think that both of them are better at what Spurs have at the moment. Wow, it's looking very familiar. So uh, the front three, I'm almost scared to ask. Um, well, I suppose there's one possible question to be asked about up top. So uh, go on, boys. Uh, tell me what your front three would be. Okay, I'll go first. I'm going to be a bit, bit controversial and stick Son up there uh, instead of Salah. And, uh, of course, the other two guys from Liverpool. Uh, I'd, I'd agree with that, actually. I'd have, uh, I'd have Son in there with, um, with Salah and, uh, sorry, with uh, Manny and Firmino. I think that would be a, a very strong attacking line. I'll just say I'd have Wijnaldum in my midfield um, instead of Oxlade-Chamberlain. Oh, Wijnaldum, I forgot about him. <laughs> Such an unassuming individual that even, even the great Rafi Honigstein forgot about him briefly. Headline writers have got an easy job today because England's golden boy and captain Harry Kane has not made the starting 11 combined between Liverpool and Spurs. Um, I have to say, boys, I kind of agree with most of that uh, uh, on form. I think that is definitely the, the way forward. Um, and Firmino does much more in, in terms of actual picking up play and creating as well as uh, scoring goals uh, than Kane does. Um We'll just have to try and explain that to Harry later when he listens to the podcast. Um, so there we have it. It's a 4-3-3. Um, Alisson and then uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Matip van Dijk, Andy Robertson, Gini Vinaldum, Fabinho, and then Keita or Milner or Ndombele uh, were the choices of the boys. And then up front, Hoyman uh, Son, uh, Firmino and Salah. If only we could see that team play. Sadio Mane. Sadio Mane. Oh, Sadio Mane, not Salah. Sorry, I was just assuming the other way around. Okay. Oh, I'll be very upset by that double snub in his attempt to win the World Player of the Year. Indeed, he will be. Um, so, we're all looking forward to the game Sunday, obviously, see if Liverpool can continue their uh, incredible start to the season and indeed maintain their lead over Manchester City. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank especially Rafi Honigstein for giving us his, uh, his time today and all the insights he's given us on Jurgen Klopp uh, and Tom and Jerry cartoons um, and, of course, Duncan Castles. If you have liked what you've heard, then please get involved and join the debate afterwards because uh, we're all available. We're at Transfer Podcast on Twitter. Rafi's at, at Honigstein. Duncan Castles at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. And of course, if you like what you hear as well, even more than you like it than you did already, then go on to iTunes, log on, give us a five-star review. We expand the community, expand the debate. And of course, it all gets better from there. We'll be back on Monday. We're on the transfer window. Until then, thanks for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) 